as a young kid, I already had a fantastic fire inside me to contribute. Uh, and but what Dizzy did is he simply poured gasoline all over it, and then and then he just uh, he just after that blues alley thing about uh, six months after that I had my first album out, and I had played blues alley as a leader, and it all went back to what he gave me back, what he gave to me. So any little bit I can help any younger aspiring musician. You know how ruthlessly difficult our life is uh, as, as trumpeters and musicians. Any help I can give, uh, I, 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 give I give it all. This episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Guru Saying Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Vaughn Nark. To quote Dizzy Gillespie, Vaughn Nark is something special. Vaughn followed in his father's footsteps and began playing trumpet at the age of six. But when he first heard Diz, his world changed forever. Having spent nearly 20 years in the Airmen of Note, Vaughn created a name for himself with his pyrotechnic approach to improvisation. Vaughn is also a passionate educator and a bit of a jazz historian, meaning he's always ready with a great story. So, pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Trumpet Guru's Hang, and uh, I am joined by my good friend, uh, and I'm happy and proud to say one of my teachers, uh, a man who's been very uh, influential in in my playing and the concepts that I've used. And uh, man, he's just, he's such a great guy. I love him to death. The one and only Vaughn Nark. Vaughn, welcome, my friend. Thank you, Jose. It's wonderful. Wonderful to see you in this idiom. And once again, congratulations to all you're giving back to music and our historic instrument with what you're doing on the internet here. It's wonderful. Oh, man. I'm just, I'm just trying to give a little bit of love back to, uh, to the trumpet world. I mean, yeah, trumpet, uh, like, you know, you and me and, and everybody that's, that's, that's uh, joining us on this hang, uh, you know, the trumpet is such an important part of our lives. And, uh, you know, whether it's the, the music that we play, uh, the friendships that we make, uh, the, the lives that we touch, uh, man, you know, I don't know where I'd be without, without the horn. Uh, well, the horn, the horn is just, a, it's a special tool to reveal our spirit. And uh, for us, our, well, our instrument is probably the third oldest form of human communication next to the human voice, the drum. And then the trumpet was originally, it was originally in, it, it invented to just amplify the emotions of the human voice over long distances, you know. And of course, it could have been a hollow, hollowed out animal bone in the beginning. And we really don't know, but it amplified it amplified our, our human emotion over a long distance, and and it's historic. It's a, it's a, it's played a colossal role in all of our major religions. Uh, when something and and the, 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 the instrument is so special that it's been turned into a verb. You know, uh, the president trumpeted his views on the Middle East. Uh, he didn't piano his views. Uh, he didn't drum. Well, he could have drummed his views. 
but you know what I'm saying. It's yeah, just yeah. when something needs to grab human attention, uh, our instrument is going to get the call. I mean, to a major horse race, to a to a sad thing like a funeral, to a to a battle call that can determine life and death. Uh, uh, it's just because when it's played immediately, even if it's played in a delicate, beautiful way, it, it grabs, it just grabs your soul. And for us being behind it, well, we know that, well, of course, the instrument is determined to make an asset of all of us, you know, in the end. And it's, and certainly in my case, it has, and, and, uh, and probably almost everyone else's, but boy, there, and it's a roller coaster, but boy, when it gives back, oh, and oh, you know the feeling of when you send something out to an audience or you recorded something and it was pretty close to the way you wanted to do it and you're, you're proud of it and you know it, it's out there. And well, you remember what Dizzy said about the horn, he says, uh, he played a tremendous role in, in, in my musical experience, and I know we're going to get into that. But he said that the instrument, it lies around all day, surrounded in luxury. It's usually warm in a felt case. It's not bothering anybody. It doesn't want to, it's not causing any trouble. And then all of a sudden, you get it out of the case and you wake it up. And sometimes it doesn't want to be woke up. And it, and, it, and it gets you back by ruining your entire day, you know, yes. but then every, but then it will give back and say, okay, I'll, I'll give you a little bit something today. Uh, you be a good boy and you come back tomorrow. Maybe I'll give you a little bit more, more tomorrow, you know, so yeah, yeah. It, you know how it is. Oh uh, man. Yeah. It, it, like you said, it, it can be a roller coaster, but um you know, you have uh, you have had such a varied career. Uh, you know, you've you've been uh, you know the the years you spent uh, with the airmen. Definitely, we're, we're going to talk about that. But but I want to go back. You know, back to that beginning, uh, the early days of Monarch and and uh, growing up in in uh, coal country here in in wonderful Pennsylvania, and of of all the places in the world. I mean, if I had to think about like a hotbed of uh, of trumpet talent, I would never have guessed that <laughs> that area would be the place. So, you know, uh, a lot of people may not not realize some of the things that were going on in your youth in that area. So, let, let's let's get into that a little bit. Okay. Well, my my father was a very fine trumpet player and a wonderful upright bass player. And a little bit later on, he played Fender when that came into vogue. But my dad tells me that. From the time I was a little baby and I would sit in his lap when he would play the horn, open horn, as loud as he wanted. When I was a little baby, I, 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 I would never cry uh, I, with my little fat little arms. I would just, I just want to, I'd, I'd reach up when he was trying to play and like try to grab the horn. You know, he says, and it was the cutest thing he said, uh, and, and he'd give me the horn and I'd play with it. Uh, and so, but he said, I was, I just, my eyes were like half dollars and I just, I was just reaching up and he decided to start me at six years old. So I had a tremendous advantage because my dad, uh, loving music and the trumpet, the way he did, of course, his, uh, his big influences were, as were for most people in the 1930s was of course, Harry James, 
and Bunny Berrigan, and of course the influence that Louis gave to them, and then King Oliver gave to Louis and whatever. But uh, he uh, he gave me the horn when I was six, and it was a cornet at first, and he started me uh, on all the traditional uh, ways. That, and there's no shortcuts uh, it, it, for any anyone. Uh, Fifty years, hundred years from now, they're still gonna they're still going to the Arvin book. There's no way around it. It's the only way to establish your ability to physically understand and technically play the horn. So it was simply it was the Arben book and uh, and 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 my problem he, as a little boy was uh, I had an older brother who was a wonderful uh, he suffered from the prejudice of this instrument but my brother was a fantastic accordionist and he didn't I mean he was influenced by people like uh, the blind accordionist Leon Sash and Art Van Dam my brother was doing substitute flatted fifth chord changes he was exceptional and uh uh wonderful wonderful musician and uh so at any rate uh, uh, and, I, and of course a, a keyboard player or a guitarist they can they can almost practice jesus if they want to 18 hours a day you know and and they're not going to suffer from any physical ailments i didn't realize that uh especially if, if you're not physically playing correctly. Well, a brass instrument, uh, unless you're, you're resting a great deal and not taxing yourself, but if you're playing and you're playing hard, why you, uh, you know, you can't be banging out on that instrument uh, for like uh, 15 hours a day, you know, otherwise you're gonna do some physical damage to yourself. And uh, I over-practiced. I would practice so much that, that my, uh, all my lip would cut open and it would bleed. And, uh, and of course I wouldn't allow it to heal and uh, I'd overdo it. And there are times dad had to actually take the horn away from me just to, uh, just to give it a day or two to recuperate. And, but Lord, I sure, I, but uh, he, uh, and then when he saw my, uh, my interest that I really developed probably around eight or nine years old in, into jazz. Uh, he pulled me aside and he said, uh, now you're aware of a lot of our great trumpeters from, of course, from Louis to, to Roy Eldridge, you know, to uh, Charlie Shavers, uh, you know, to all of the, he told me when he saw Charlie Shavers play live with Dorsey, when Charlie came out in front of the band, he said, kid, he said, Charlie played so hard, he actually turned blue. <laughs> wow. Oh, and Charlie was just one of our greatest, greatest trumpeters. But he said, I want you to really start to listen to Dizzy Gillespie, because when he plays, uh, he just has to play three or four notes. First of all, you immediately know who he is and and what he chooses is his uh, what he's doing with the chord progression and what he's doing with the particular interval or whatever he's trying, there's something so distinctive about him, you immediately know who he is. So I really tried to get as many Dizzy Gillespie records as I could. It was very difficult coming from the area, you know, that we lived, that I came from. 
But my brother did have several of Dizzy's albums, and one album that he had in particular was the one Diz did in 64 called Jean Vogue Carib. And it's the one with uh, Moody is on it, of course, and Kansas Fields is on it. And at any rate, it has Fiesta Mojo and a bunch of other stuff. So that was the first one. But then I started to listen as much as I could. And something rose up inside me, and I, I didn't understand it, and, I, and then I came to understand that I was not meant to understand it, I was meant to follow it. And that was simply, I wanted to meet this man face to face, and even greater than that. This made, Christ, this made no sense, but boy, it was powerful in me. I wanted to play with him, and I mean, right next to him. Mm -hmm. and, and God, I mean, what an odd thing. And uh, but as the years went on, and uh, I turned that I turned that dream into a, into a reality. And I was at one particular point, I was able to introduce I was able to introduce uh, Dad to Dizzy, and, and I told Dizzy Dad Dizzy when I was. Nine years old, Dad told me to listen to you. He said you were the greatest, and I would learn and I'd get better. And I followed it, and I did listen. And now here to both of you together. And at that moment when that happened, that was the greatest musical accomplishment, personally, musically, every every other way. It made me feel like I was a thousand feet tall, and Dizzy recognized it as well. And I mean, it was, it was beyond, and I, I'll go through down the line how I actually broke through to Disney folks when he let me sit in with him for the first time. And uh, so at any rate, his influence on me was uh, just beyond, uh, it was immeasurable. Of course, we have to be careful when each of us, it's, it's natural to be enamored by certain people, especially our colossal figures like, uh, like Dizzy. But we do not want to be a copy of them. In the, in the end, we're going to be recognized for how different we are from them than how alike. We have to be very careful of that. However, that impetus, that fire, and even Dizzy had his influences. He had Roy Eldridge. Dizzy was much more influenced by Roy Eldridge than he was by Louis. But then he, in fact, took Roy's place in Teddy Hill's band in 1937. That was Dizzy's first, you know, big, big shot. And Roy had his influences. And, of course, Louis did, too, with King Oliver. But he found his own way. And in the end, what we, what we aspire to do, and many of us don't reach this, but in the end, we want to find our own voice uh, so that when we play, we... You can, the listener can hear certain influences, but in the end, when it's all, what comes out in the wash is yourself. Right. And this is our goal, and much more so in, in, in what Dizzy always called our music. Any interview, you'd always hear him say, oh, our music, our music, beautiful term. It, it's much more prevalent in our music than it is in classical playing, of course. In classical playing, you you are a part of the orchestra, and you 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 are you are expected to be to do your to do your portion. But yet, you're a part of a, you're just one part of the entire your entire orchestra. Well, although I have tremendous respect for all of our great great classical 
musicians and classical trumpeters, I knew that my, for me, there's too much juice in the thimble for me to, I, 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 it, my heart went someplace else, although I, I admire that. His music is all one language and there's various styles, but I, I went a different direction. I found my voice, I followed it, and I still follow it. And uh, so. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and you, you, when you're saying that, it, it's so important, I think, that, that people uh, not lose sight of the finding that balance between uh, honoring the tradition and then moving things forward. Um, I'm always reminded of uh, another another trumpet great, uh, Clark Terry, and uh, Clark's thing about uh, imitation, assimilation, innovation. You know, and you know the way that we learn, whether it's it's trumpet or whether it's you know things like uh, you know walking or talking or the way we interact with people, we learn it through imitation. We we see how the people around us are interacting, and and that that becomes the basis. And we assimilate it, we make it part of who we are, and then we can, once we do that, then we can finally start to add our own interpretation, our own takes on it. So, uh, I mean, you know, having listened to your playing over the years, you know, it's it, it's real easy to say, yeah, we, I can hear the influence of Dizzy. And uh, and the fact that like on, on so many of your recordings, you pay uh, you pay honor to Dizzy through your programming choices, you know, because you you do like to 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 do a lot of his his tunes like uh, Konama and uh, Fiesta Mojo, you know, some some of the the, the tracks like that, and it, it's it's an honor to him. But you're not trying to be Dizzy, you, you know, no. you're, you're still you're still Vaughn. But uh, well, can I can I get into how I broke through? Yeah, please. Because, uh, well. I was always fascinated with the fiery end of the trumpet. Uh, as a typical little boy, I was interested in, well, who is the strongest boxer? Who is the best weightlifter? You know, typical masculine stuff. Who, uh, who, uh, who is the greatest, strongest football player? I used to love, as a little boy, watching Jim Brown, who was, to me, the, the greatest football player I ever saw. And I... I follow the sport, and I, I just amazed at what he was able to do. So, and of course, Dizzy had that, but uh, there was something, there was something more. And uh, so, and as a young kid at around, around nine years old, I had a pretty reliable G, you know, I could play above it sometimes, but I had a strong G and uh, in all weather too, because you know, coming from Pennsylvania, when you're playing those football games, you know, and it's five degrees outside, you know, it's pretty, yeah. it's pretty damn hard, you know. But I, 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 but I had, I had that, and uh, and uh, so when I, when I first got to Washington D.C. in 1976, when I, uh, I didn't go right into the Airmen of Note after boot camp, I. Uh, I was in our what was called a ceremonial band for a year and a half before I got uh, onto the Airmen of Note. But uh, I, when ever Dizzy would come into town, he wasn't playing Blues Alley in those days. There was a wonderful club in Silver Spring. You probably remember it. It was called uh, the Showboat Lounge in Silver Spring, Pete Lambros's club. Okay. 
Phil Woods won a Grammy there for a live album he did. And anyway, all the major figures of jazz would play the showboat. And uh, I would go there with my wife. And uh, I, I I just wanted to just break through just to say hello. Uh, uh, but he was always surrounded with people and uh, very, very difficult to break through. I had no luck whatsoever at the showboat lounge. But I'd sit at the first... Uh, I'd be at the first table by the bandstand, you know, and I would enjoy everything was wonderful. And then he started to play Blues Alley. And by that time, uh, I had uh, I had played Blues Alley with several big bands. And so I was familiar with the club and I'd be there every night trying to break through, even to say hello, uh, this, that, or that, no luck. Well, one night at the end of Dizzy's gig, I'm sitting at the bar and, uh, getting ready to go home and an older Italian gentleman came up to me and he entered and he says boy kid I, I I see you here I see you here every day uh you must really you must really love Diz and I said oh yeah I said you know I mean uh, I can't he, he he left an influence on me as a young boy and I I just love being here he said, I, I said I'm having a hell of a hard time uh, even getting to say hello to him. And, and he looked at me kind of funny and he said, uh, well, my name's Louis Belushi. And uh, I used to drive this all, all around New York. He, he's my friend. And he said, come to the club a little bit early tomorrow and I'm going to see what I can do. Well, naturally, I figured, uh-oh, this. So I went home and uh, I figured I'm going to make the most of this. Maybe something will happen. So back in them days, we had the old cassette recorders. You know, there were no CDs. There were just the small cassette machines with the condenser microphones and the tape. Well, I had a tape of some of the things that uh, I had I had recorded, and I got to Blues Alley early, and uh, naturally, uh, and Louis sees me at the bar, and he says, uh, "Come on, come on upstairs with me." So I went upstairs, and Dizzy's early. And he's just sitting down, taking it easy. And Louis introduces me to him. And and I don't know where half of these words came from or, or whatever, but basically the paraphrase, I, I basically said, Mr. Gillespie, I've been listening to you since I'm a little boy. And uh, I'm a trumpet player. And would you mind if I if I played for you some of the some of the things that I recorded? And he looked at me and he never even said yes or no. He just smiled. Well, I turned the tape on and uh, it, I played it for a few for a few minutes. And, no, and now the dressing room is getting crowded with all kinds of people, you know, the band showing up, everything. And it doesn't even look to me like Dizzy's even listening to it. But I figured, all right, I did the best I could. I, I took my best shot and at least, I, my God, I got a chance to meet him. So I just turned the tape off. And immediately he says, is that you, kid? And I said, yes, sir, it is. He says, you, you sound all right. <laughs> I said, and I, I was like, I don't know where this came from. But it came from, I said to him, I can't put into words what it would mean to actually perform with you. I promise you, sir, I will not embarrass you. And he, he, he looked at me. <laughs> God knows what he thought. And he didn't say anything. And I figured, well, I damn it. I might get knocked out, but I'm gonna, I'm going, I'm going out swinging, you know. Right. So 
and and Dizzy always started on time. You know, I mean, he, he if it was a nine o'clock hit. He he was on his way to the bandstand at five to nine. Well, he, he starts waltzing down the steps to hit the bandstand around five to nine, and he sees me sitting in the corner, and with his finger, he, he did this. Well, I knew what that meant. Well, I wasn't presumptuous enough to bring my horn into the club, for Christ's sake. I was parked three blocks away down the harbor parking lot. If you know Blues Alley, it has that big hill, and you got the harbor parking lot parked for five bucks. Jose, I have never run so fast in my life. I ran down those goddamn that hill. I got my I got my horn out. I running down wasn't too bad. Running up was rough, but I I was in good shape, so I ran back up. Forget about warm up. Oh, forget about it. Now by this time the tune has started, and uh, man, I just put the mouthpiece in the horn. I found, a, and I he he just pointed to a little place on the bandstand for me. And then after the tune started, it was beautiful Al Gaffa tune as he used to open up. It was called Barcelona, beautiful Latin tune. Well, he points to me. Well, Jose, on that when I put that horn up, it, it was stone cold. But I played everything I knew. Then I played everything I thought I knew. And then I played everything I didn't know, and the audience—the audience was wonderful. Dizzy grabbed me on the stand, and he put his arm around me, and he whispers in my ear, "Stay up here." Well, I played the whole night. He invited me back the next day. I played the entire engagement, three sets every night. Then I and I'd walk him back to his hotel room. Some nights he would invite me up, and we would talk, and that began. And that night, oh Jesus Christ, my God Almighty! I mean, uh, uh, oh, what I learned, and uh, how the guys in his band—they how nice to me they were. And uh, and then the second night, I brought in my valve from bone and my flugelhorn because I would play harmony lines. Like it was wonderful when we did Manteca because with the trombone I could you know bo beep bo beep bo beep bo beep you know I could play harmony lines and and in any high notes or whatever he just point and my God uh, if we were playing something very difficult his guitar player would whisper in me say well. Watch now, these changes are tough. We used to, uh, Izzy used to, he wrote a beautiful tune for Martin Luther King entitled Brother K. Beautiful, beautiful composition for Martin Luther King. And and the, and the chord changes were, they're a little esoteric. You know, you, you wouldn't get to fudge your way through, you know, you, you had to know, otherwise you sound like an asshole, you know. So uh, uh, the whole, and of course, Late, years later, I brought him in to be the soloist with the Airmen and Noted Constitution Hall. We had 6,000 people there. And Dizzy asked me to do his Wolf Trap thing in 87 that was recorded, you know, with John Faddis and Freddie Hubbard and Winton and Jimmy Owens and Lilo Schifrin, the big band, you know. So I brought my dad to all of this and it was it was beautiful. So I so. As a young kid, I already had a fantastic fire inside me to contribute. Uh, and but what Dizzy did is he simply poured gasoline all over it, and then and then he just uh, he just 
after that Blues Alley thing, about uh, six months after that, I had my first album out and I had played Blues Alley as a leader. And it all went back to what he gave me back, what he gave to me. So any little bit I can help any younger aspiring musician, you know how ruthlessly difficult our life is uh, as, as trumpeters and musicians, any help I can give, uh, I, 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 give I give it all. Yeah. So, uh, because to me, it was like, yeah, I mean, th th yeah, there there are a couple really, I think, important points with that. That uh, you know, one is if if you want to have a career in music, um, you have to have a you, you have to find the stones at some point to put yourself in a situation oh. <laughs> that yeah, you got to put yourself out there. You know, uh, so what you did, I mean, like you said, you know, you don't know where those words came from, no. but. It's that 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 courage to just okay, you know, this is my dream. I'm just I'm going to go for it, and and whether I, whether I'm still standing or I'm knocked down, at least I can say I gave it my best shot. Amen. So that's yeah, one thing, and the second thing is is the you know the side like the dizzy side and the side that that uh, you know you have taken on yourself as well is the encouragement of people to give them a, a, an environment where they feel safe to be able to do that. Because I remember uh, when I was uh, when I was studying with you, I was driving from Harrisburg uh, down to uh, Harrisburg, PA, down to Chevrolet, Maryland, where you were living at the time. And uh, I remember going to a gig uh, that you were playing. And I can't remember the, the club, but it was, it was a small club. Uh, but there was a young kid, I think maybe like 14 or something like that, that, that was uh, uh, a student at, at the school that you were teaching at. And you had him come up and play a bunch of tunes with you. And it was, it was just great. I mean, it's like, you know, that is so nice to be able to see uh, a young budding trumpet player get a chance to stand up on stage with professionals because uh, your band was, you know, there was no, there were no slackers in that band, uh -huh. but to, just to get up there and to play. And you were so encouraging of him. Uh, you know, you let me come up and play a couple of tunes too. And you know, you're encouraging of me just like, you know, it, it's that, that willingness to to help the the next generation of players to get a chance to to let their voice be heard. So you well, know. I remember I, I became friends with John Faddis in the early nineteen eighties. Uh, my one of what John John did a blindfold test for downbeat, and uh, for one reason or another, they pulled they pulled one of my tunes for him. This would have been around eighty two. And uh, John didn't know who it was. He guessed that I was Doc Severinsen. That's who he thought it was. And uh, and then later he, he but then we got to know each other. And uh, I would I've shown up at many uh, uh, of John's uh, jam sessions at various shows throughout the years. And uh, and if he sees me in the wings, uh, I get the same. Uh, uh, I get the same uh, the same thing that, that that came from Dizzy. So, uh, but our, our instrument—I mean, we have a very, very special brother and sisterhood on our instrument. As long as our uh, our egos aren't out of control, and and we are, uh, we really should. I remember Doc Severinsen told me one time, uh, 
lead trumpeters should stick together. And, uh, and that's, uh, it's funny when you're doing like a spot at the trumpet guild or something, it's what I always tell the audience is beautiful. It's beautiful to be here performing for you because I know everybody in the audience is better than I am. <laughs> I know every one of you can play better than me and that's just fine, you know, but, uh, we, we pull for each other. At least we should. And, uh, our instrument is uh, our instrument is just it's just magnificent. Of course, we we each have to uh, we we each have our own concept of sound, mm -hmm. uh, and because for and especially for us, it, it, I hate, I mean we don't like labels, but we'll, we'll use it in, in in the jazz world. What is your sound, Jose's sound, not Vaughn's sound, not Dizzy's, not not Bobby Shoes, not Marv Stams, not Miles, not yours. How do you hear? How do you hear? Because that's what we want. That now for me, on the I I, I play the trumpet, the flugelhorn, the valve trombone, and the baritone horn, and I also sing. And if it wouldn't have not in a cheap way, I'd like to say, but I like to sing soft, nice ballads and I like the scat scene because of Dizzy's influence but on the trumpet for me how I hear is I want the note to be centered I want it to have some edge but I want it to have some body around it too I don't want it to be all edge I don't want it to be too fluffy I want it to be commanding commanding now, if I want to change the timber, I'm going to change horns. I'm going to go to the flugelhorn because I want something totally different on that horn. I'm still going to use the upper register a little bit on the flugelhorn, but only for dramatic effect. Not too much, but I will use it. And some people won't like that. They don't want the flugelhorn to be played above a first ledger line A. I can understand that. But we have to, we have to honor what's going on in our soul not someone else's right so uh, so at any rate and then when you change to a trombone and if it wouldn't have been for maynard i would have never picked up the valve trombone ever because as a young boy and i dated that around the ninth grade because i had a pretty good upper register all the old timers especially my dad they would say god don't play the trombone it's gonna mess up your trumpet chops it'll mess up your embouchure well i was young and i was bullheaded and dad did get me one. So when I first put the mouthpiece in the trombone, I, Lord, I was able to play it. Why not? And the incisiveness that you can get on the valve trombone, the edge that you can play with, it's, it's remarkable. Well, I could play it. Boy, then I went back to the trumpet. Jose, I could not play a second line G. I had nothing. I mean nothing. So as a young boy, I'm thinking, oh, God, they were right. I blew it out. I blew my trumpet. I, I can't play the trumpet any. I should have never. But I stuck, I stuck with it. And the next day, I could play the trumpet again. And I would switch back and forth and back and forth. And I would realize, wait a minute. What I'm doing here is I, I'm kind of, I'm building an embouchure over an existing embouchure. And I got better and better and better at it. And, and it, so... <laughs> 
in the late 1970s when I went uh, out on the road with the Top 40 show band, I was the whole brass section. And it got to the point where uh, I was kind of like Mick Gillette or somebody, you know. It got to the point where my trombone playing actually enhanced my trumpet embouchure. And it took a while to get there. But, and then, of course, the baritone horn, the euphonium, the, the, the thickness, the beauty, uh, uh, the, the timber is totally different than the trombone. And you're giving your audience, you're giving them different colors. You know, uh, uh, you're giving them, a di and, and each instrument develops their own personality. Mm -hmm. You know, for, the trumpet for me is usually the broad, aggressive, aggressive thing. The flugelhorn, it, you make love to a little bit more. It, it's a little more delicate. The trombone is about nice incisive lines, and the baritone horn can be beautifully thick, melodic, thick, syrupy type of a. So, so that's I love I love all of them, you know. And uh, but the granddaddy, it, it, it all starts with the it all starts with the trumpet. And through the years, I don't know if you can see or not, but. I'm a, I've been diabetic like for like 42 years and uh, I mark very easily. So my, my chops, and I always played hard, played a lot of lead, played a lot of high notes, played, I never took, and I would rather fall on my ass going for something than not have the balls to go for it in the first place. Right. Now it's happened, mm -hmm. you know, but, but I can still look in the mirror and, I mean, within reason and say, you know, I didn't hit the home run, but God damn it. You know, I, I surely, my will was there. So I've maintained my will through the years, but you know, I'm, uh, I have my issues, you know, and, uh, that, that mouthpiece has to go where it's going now because I've, I've actually worn my tissue away, you know, it's, it's there, you know, so. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it, <laughs> It's not a forgiving instrument, you know, no. when you think about it, uh, you know, it, it's uh, a lot of people, you know, I, I love it when people say, oh, well, you're natural. And it's like, you know, there's, there's no natural, there's nothing natural about playing the trumpet. <laughs> it's a, it's a, yes, a, a, you're taking a, a hunk of metal and you're jamming it against your face. Yep. And uh, th there, there's nothing natural about that. We so, do have, uh, we do have, uh, many, many powerful uh, players now. There's a greater, much greater knowledge of embouchure mechanics now than when I was a kid, uh, uh, much greater. Uh, when I was a little boy, I used, to, I used to look at the great, of course it wasn't easy to even find pictures in them days, for, let alone videos, you know, of, but I would see different named trumpeters and I would, I'd look at the style of their mouthpiece, you know, the way they're, the way their mouthpiece actually looked. I don't know if you can see, but, but you know, and I used to think, oh, maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe yeah. it's because of this. Maybe, maybe that makes that player such a, and then I, then, you know, a little child who starts, you come to realize, no, this is just cosmetics. It means absolutely nothing. And then, and then I would look at the different placements, the, pic the pictures that I could find. And I'd see, well, I go, let's go back to Louis and you, Louis played off to the right. He did not play dead center. He played off to the right, you know? And then I would look at a, a picture of a Roy Eldridge. Roy played dead center. 
with two-thirds of the mouthpiece on the lower and one-third on the upper, dead center. I look at Harry James. He'd be just the opposite. He'd be two-thirds on the upper and one-third on the lower. Then I would look at maybe a picture of Bunny Berrigan. And Lord, his trumpet seemed to angle on an upward slope when he played. And I would look at all these different placements and say, what the hell is going on here? Or a Doc Severinsen dead center, just like Roy Eldridge and, and Maynard, like Louis, off to the right. Charlie Shavers, off to the right. And Charlie had a big diastole between his front teeth, his incisors. And Charlie could do anything. Yeah. You know, Cat Anderson, very low placement. I'd look at pictures of, I'd find pictures of the great Leo Shepard, the whistler. You know, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. All, all the great players from Benny Bailey all said Leo, Leo played even higher than Cat. And uh, with Lionel Hampton and all the great, great trumpeters that played that went to Lionel Hampton's band. And I, all the different placements and say, What's going on? Bud Brisboy, the same thing on mostly lower. Uh, uh, John uh, John Faddis, a little bit off to the left. You know, uh, Dizzy, dead center. But I would talk to Reinhardt about Dizzy. Reinhardt would say he's doing everything physically correctly. He just has this issue with the puff. Everything else is sound. And so at any rate, I didn't understand about all these. Well, wait, we have to do that because, because uh, physically, our jaw structure, our teeth formation is different for all of us, yet there are similarities. But there's a difference between placements and Bill Chase, another little bit, little bit off to the right. You know, if you, if you, if you go through the history of, of, of our instrument within the jazz world, uh, an enormous amount of trumpeters did play a little bit off to the right, similar to Louis. You had Louis, you had, uh, you had Charlie Shavers, of course. You had Rex Stewart. If you look at Rex's placement, it's the same thing. Sweets Edison, same thing. Maynard, same thing. You know, uh, uh, and, and then there, there are many. Chase, the same way. Lynn Viviano, same way. Uh, are many, many did... Uh, and then there are others that are dead center, absolutely beautiful, classical-looking embouchures like, like Roy Elders. Roy played with false teeth, too. And, uh, and of course, Doc and Winton, you know, uh, dead center, you know, with a little bit more on the lower than the upper. But it, it, And Reinhardt, Doc Reinhardt, was, uh, he understood this, and, uh, that's, and that's why he typed everyone. And... Uh, as opposed to, uh, like, let's say, a Costello or a Roy Stevens, uh, that they're embouchure like a Roy Roman or whatever. They're absolutely sound. They work. The Brisboy and those type of players can play all day long with a little bit of rest. They can play. They can start their solo on a Tuesday and end it on a Thursday. You know, but uh, you can't. Not everyone has this has the, has the facial structure to be able to play like that. Uh, and Reinhardt understood, uh, he understood about this and he tried to work with what nature gave you. And then if he sensed something would help, would, uh, he, would, he, would, he would also recommend that. But uh, these were, 
These were wonderful. And, and one thing, Reinhardt, that I wanted to mention to you did tell me that really certainly came true in turn, it, it, when we brought up Dizzy. Dizzy played bone dry. And that means his upper and lower lip was absolutely dry. No moisture whatsoever. His pre-gig his pre, uh, routine where he'd stand over a sink and he carried a bottle of witch hazel in this case. And he would bathe his chops in witch hazel. Would dry them out. You know, he had to play dry. Okay. Now, uh, and Doc said the only the bad thing about an embouchure is a dry embouchure is it can give you a false sense of security, in that you the chops will feel absolutely solid because there's no lubrication. He says, but we have to be careful. Is as a person ages. It can be harder and harder and harder to find your embouchure, and that's and what and that's prophetic, and it totally is true. He says it's much better to have just a little bit of lubrication, so that when you're when our chops are traveling on the pivot or the track from low to high. And Reinhardt sometimes regretted using that term pivot because it implies a, a massive movement. This is right. This is the movement is very minuscule, but it is there. It can, with just a little bit of moisture, it can, it can help with the embouchure uh, so, that, so that it can slide on our track just a, now not too much, but just enough. And he would notice I would, I would always lick, just flick my tongue right uh, instinctually right over right over my top lip before he played. He says, that, that's a good thing. Now, Maynard played dry on the upper lip. You would all often notice many times that you'd see him, you know, in instinctually. He had, he had to be dry. Although he was drinking all the time, maybe some of a nervous habit or whatever, taking a sip or whatever he drank. But you would, oftentimes there was an area, and boy, he knew what he had to do. So a little bit of lubrication on the embouchure, I mean, we don't want Crisco on there or something. You know, we don't want to slide all, but just a little, a little bit of lubrication. And another thing, Reinhardt, and I hope, I, I hope trumpeters try this because uh, Reinhardt saw, told me this, and boy, did it help me. He said to me, Vaughn, he says, how do you attack? And I, at first I was taken aback. I said, well, geez, uh, I guess tall. He said, how many attacks do you use? I said, well, I never even thought about it. I said, uh, well, I guess it's just a taw, you know, uh, maybe T as you get higher. I, I don't know. I said, I, I never even thought. He said, well, do you ever attack just using air? It's almost like a gliss into the note. And I started to think, and I said, yes, I do. And he said, well, isn't that an attack, too? And I said, yeah. He said, okay, so you attack two different ways. He said, well, can you double and triple tongue? And I said, yes, I can. He says, well, isn't the caw an attack, too? And I started to think, and I said, yeah, sure it is. He said, well, so you attack three different ways. He says, now I want you to try something. I want you to just, just give me four caws on the middle C. Caw, caw, you know, third attack, you know. Okay. How high have you ever tried to attack using the caw? 
And I said, well, I, I never even thought of it like that, but I guess if I'm playing etudes or exercises or whatever that, well, maybe if it goes up to a first ledger line A, if, if that's the thing, maybe I'll attack, maybe I'll go up that high. I said, can you try to attack a high C using a car? Well, it came out clear as a bell. And I wasn't working at all. All I was doing was releasing, releasing the epiglottis, forming the chops, tightening the corners, forming the chops, and clear. He said, not bad. What about the G? So the high G? I said, G. Yeah. Boom. That fifth interval, C to G, clean as a whistle. He said, go for the double high C. Right on it. And I said, oh, my God. I said, oh. And I was like, I almost fell off the chair. And he said, this is what's going on. Your chops are sound. And all you're doing is you're releasing the air. You're not disturbing your upper or lower lip at all with your tongue. You don't even realize it, but your tongue is already arched. And all you're doing is releasing the air pressure with your epiglottis. And you're, and you're letting the note go. Now, I know this is going to distort because of the test that you and I just did. And I'm cold now, okay? I haven't played since we started the interview. And I'm not going to try to hurt anybody. And this will distort. But just to show you that if you center that and just attack with a caw, I'm not working for that note. I'm not working at all. All I'm doing is tightening my corners. My embouchure is on the upper track of my upper area of my pivot or my track. And I'm just releasing the air with that. And in studio playing or any playing where accuracy is very important, by God, for me, it opened up a whole other world. And uh, for trumpeters, try to experiment playing, just play, just try to play a little bit higher using the caw and see how much, and of course it will turn into a quee or a whatever, but all you're doing, if you have certain amount of development, you're tightening our corners. All our corners are, are two little must, two vices vice, that keep our mouthpiece on the track of whatever our pivot or our track is. We solidify them there, and we are releasing that, and there is hardly any air going through the horn whatsoever. We're using much more air on a low C than we are in a double high C. However, the air pressure, it is the air pressure and the, and the forces generated within the body itself that allow, if, you, if you're one of the trumpeters who hear in the upper register, you hear it, you want it. You, not all of us hear it. That's why if you don't hear it, let it alone. But if you do and you want to you want to find it, it's there. You know, try that and just a little bit of lubrication so that you're not you're not playing bone dry. Because the older you get, if you play dry, it can find it can take you longer and longer. Most dry players will sound stronger on the third set than they will on the first. And they don't know why. 
And sometimes that's not what you want. You've got to be ready. You've got to be thrown down right from the get-go. And uh, it can be difficult. It can be so. And, and those two things, especially the car with Reinhardt, the guy was a genius. And all his stuff is available. Yeah, I, I really, I guess I, I resonated with um, a lot of Doc's teaching, mostly because I think because uh, I have uh, I have that somewhat analytical mind, so I really appreciated uh, the amount of detail that he put into it, um, and that if you really look at, at, at his teachings, it's more about understanding your unique physiology. And, you know, the types are, the, the types are just to kind of get you into those broader categories, but then uh, that, that leaves you room for the individual aspects that you have to, you have to address for yourself. So I, I just really, I really love his, his teachings. And I think that, that they're, you know, he was way ahead of his time. Oh, God. And, and uh, also it gets to the point where, especially if you're teaching and you're beginning someone, you can tell just by the way they speak where the best position for the chops are going to be. You don't even have to give them a mouthpiece. For example, when I'm looking at you, you are an absolute type four. When you speak, all I, I see your lower teeth. I do not see your upper. And your natural jaw position is forward. You are going to be placing lower than someone who, when they speak, you, you know, most people, when they speak, Jose, we see their upper incisors. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, but there are some that all we see is the lower portion, and uh, they are probably going to wind up being upstream players, and their and their uh, placement is going to be a bit lower, and uh, and and can you imagine? Like, let's say if Louis would have had a formal trumpet teacher, okay, oh boy, and and would have saw his play something for me, little boy. You know, and Louis put it up there, and he was off to the right. Can you imagine? Even if the man or woman was well intended, can you imagine what he would have done to Louis, or let's say uh, Maynard, if they would have said, "No, no, no! Now, now, listen to your teacher. Now, your mouthpiece has to be such and such on such and such lip, and it has to be dead center." Can you imagine what what genius they would have robbed us of? Yeah. And yet they meant well, mm -hmm. hopefully. And then there are others that are, for lack of expression, they can be a prick. And they don't mean well. Well, you, you, you'll sense them right away, so you get away from them. But most of us do mean well. We are not, So that's why there are different placements. And it has to do with finding, what you're, finding your mo the most freedom within your track where you can go from low to high with endurance and good sound and your mechanics are sound. And you're able to uh, to maintain and to get stronger by the end of the night, and, and not weaker. Our placements are, and there's a reason. Uh, uh, so, and there's a much greater knowledge of it now than there was certainly back in the 1930s, 40s, or 50s, or even when I was a kid in the early 60s. Coming up, you know, there's a knowledge of it. And uh, but if you hear, if that's the way you hear. Like I remember reading an interview Charlie Shavers did before he passed away in 1971 with Les Tompkins. Charlie said he didn't enjoy playing in the upper register very much. He said, I only do it for a dramatic effect. 
and I do it for for show business and this, that, or the other thing. But but I I don't uh, you know I don't I don't it's not everything to me. You know I don't necessarily uh, that's the that's the way he felt, and uh, and that's fine. But if that's the way you hear, then you you know there's a there's a will, there's a way. There's more than one way to the top of a mountain, and uh, and we all develop somewhat of a hybrid philosophy about various things we've learned through trial and error and experience and whatever to to help us make sense out of because all of our musicality for us as trumpet players it has to be compressed into the circumference of what are we going to say a nickel or maybe a dime and it's this all of our knowledge the beauty that we want to come out it has to come through here it could be in the soul, but if we can't get it through here, what the hell good is it? You know, it this, and there's a world of triumph in here, and there's also a world of tragedy. And all of us have been through both ends of it, so we have empathy for each other, and we just try to make our instrument as enjoyable to, to perform as we possibly can. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, what you're saying there about the, the triumph and the tragedy, um, you know, I think... I've had this conversation with so many different people uh, on the on and off the podcast. Um, you know, there's there's trumpet playing, which is the kind of the mechanical thing, like how you produce the sound, and then there's making music. Yes. And uh, you know, the the all of the technique in the world and all the knowledge and the theory and all that that stuff uh, to me is ultimately pointless if you're not making music and music is like you were saying earlier yes communication and you what you're communicating your ideas and your emotions yep and and, so, and, what, and when we're up there we don't think about anything mechanically we just think about making music there's another thing if you don't mind if i can bring up that really helped me sure and that, and that is uh especially if you want to play the horn uh, at times paying respect and honor to the tempos that our great grandmasters left us with. You know, uh, first of all, you have to be able to play the horn, and that's why all of our traditional Arban exercises and Clark book and St. Jacob and all that, you've got to be able to play the horn. But if you want to develop speed, if you hear lines at a, uh, a serious tempo, uh, I, 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 I came across a book many years ago. Uh, it was written by John McNeil. You, you probably know what I'm talking about, but it had to do with his, his left brain, right brain type of a thinking approach. And basically John wrote down many passages of very, very odd fingerings, very, very unique things that we are not going to see in music very unorthodox stuff and john advocated trying to play these on your left hand not your right hand right so what i did and I, once i started this i realized physically playing them is not the point of what he's trying to bring across but the left brain right brain for any trumpeter who's listening to this even if they're well developed and they have a lot of stuff going I'm going to hold my horn up here to, to the camera. And 
and, and just get through this thought here. Now, let, let's go to our, our traditional uh, Clark, uh, one of the Clark exercises. I don't know which one it is, but but uh, the exercises that uh, the series that uh, that starts uh, whatever the hell that Clark two. That's there Clark. you go. Okay. Now try. Now let's go through which of those keys that are written there are the most unorthodox for us. Well, the one that starts on our F is very simple, no problem. But what about the one that starts on the C sharp? That's a little odd. Yeah, it, so we have Okay, that's a little odd. It doesn't feel that good. Well, for any trumpeter listening to this, just hold your horn naturally and slowly pressing the vowels down hard with your left hand, slowly go through that exercise and then rest and do it again and rest and do it again. Now, by this time, the tendons in your left arm are going to start to burn a little bit. It's an unnatural thing. You feel odd. You're making your body do something that is a little bit odd. It's not used to it. You're burning a little bit. Now, put that mouthpiece up to your chops and play that same exercise normally on your right hand. You are going to notice immediately that you are in better control. You, you are in much better because you're going from the subconscious to the conscious mind, and you're going to play it cleaner with a greater speed. So any difficult fingering pattern that you have, or if you want to develop articulation and speed, practice on your left hand. In fact, many of us, well, we don't even know it. When we're sitting at a coffee table talking to one of our buddies or whatever about, let's say, football, nothing to do with music, we may find that our hands start to, are actually fingering something, our mind is music that is going through our mind on the coffee table, just with our fingers. We don't even know we're doing it. It's, it's just subconscious. Stop yourself. Don't finger it on your right hand. Finger it on your left. Any difficulty you have with fingering, go through it slowly until your tendons start to burn on your left hand. Rest and then try to play it normally. And I guarantee you're going to feel much more in control. You'll have more dexterity, more speed, more command, and it's going to help you. Try left-handed practice. Yeah, and actually, if, if uh, you wanted to learn more about this, is there's a lot of research going on with it right now. It's something called, now they call it neurobics. And when you do a pattern interrupt like that, uh, so it's basically taking, taking an action that is somewhat familiar, but it's done in an unorthodox manner or an unorthodox time, research has found that it increases the brain's ability to, to intake new information. So you can use it uh, from a, a, a technical playing perspective of uh, you know, learning or, or repatterning uh, re things. Uh, so you're gonna get more dexterity. You can also use this for uh, resetting your brain in terms of like trying to uh, break 
bad behavior patterns or bad thoughts or bad beliefs. If you want to instill a new belief, new knowledge, new information, think about that. Do something on the opposite hand, like playing your trumpet, brushing your teeth with the opposite hand, writing with the opposite hand. And uh, the research shows that it does increase uh, not only the speed, but also it makes the, the new knowledge more sticky. So, yeah, And for us, if we see a passage that's written, and we're having a difficult time with the fingering, it, 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 just think of it as a shirt that has a terrible crease in it. It's beautifully starched shirt, but there's a crease in it. So you don't want to wear the shirt. But what this technique can do is it's an iron. Goes through, it will iron out the crease to the point where the shirt is beautiful, you'll feel good, and you can wear it. The last thing Reinhardt told me is to make sure you, every seven years, he used to say, get a full set of dental impressions, both upper and lower of your teeth, and have, it, have a new set done every seven years. Many people would think do it every five years, because God forbid, especially as we age, if something happens, we have an accident or, or something neurological go, is going on and you're, you're performing at a level you're reasonably pleased with. The teeth are the foundation of our embouchure. And at least you'll be able to go to an orthodontist and be able to have them somewhat get close to replicating the way your teeth were before certain issues go on. Because let's face it, when we... Our embouchure is a sandwich in terms of, uh, bear with me with this, in terms of soft, hard, soft, okay? Now, excuse me, just the opposite, hard, soft, hard. And that is our mouthpiece is, is made of plastic or metal. It's hard, okay? And we put it on a soft thing, which is our chops. Now, inside that are our teeth, which is hard. So we have a, we, and, and that is where it sits. Once those teeth can change, it can, it can mess with our placement. It can mess with our track. The teeth are very, one of the strongest trumpet players I ever heard Jose would say, we used to play with the Airmen, a wonderful festival in Milwaukee calls a Summerfest Festival. Mm -hmm. All the great bands went through. One, one time we were playing and Buddy's band was on right after us. But before us was a Dixieland band. And Dixieland for a trumpet player can be one of the most difficult styles to replicate because you're constantly pounding, you're constantly playing, then you have to solo, and then you have out choruses, one after another after another. I heard this guy play, and they announced his name as Red Wolf. Red Wolf on trumpet. Well, I went up to him at the end of the gig you know, odd name, you know, and I started to talk to him and Jose Red had four teeth. That's all he had in his mouth. So when he opened his mouth to talk to you, he really looked like a wolf, you know? He had two incisors with the space between them on top and two, in, and two lower teeth with the space between them on bottom, but they were perfect legs of the embouchure. And this son of a bitch could play forever and ended on a high F, big as a house, powerful. So our teeth are, boy, our teeth are just very important to us. So we have to at least have, have something so that an orthodontist, a dentist can replicate in case something happens to us. Yeah, 
Yeah. Wow. That's that's some good stuff, man. That's definitely worth the price of admission. So, <laughs> um, yeah, man, it's hard to believe we, we've been been at it as long as we have. Here. I hope I'm not talking too much. Because, oh man, uh, it's, uh, I've done a lot of clinics, you know, through the years, and uh, and and both for real wonderful professionals and young people too. And uh, for young people, if you can't demonstrate what you're talking about, man, they don't want to hear you talk. You know, but if you do, then you get them in the palm of your hand, and yeah. then, and then, uh, so it's that. It, so uh, it's, uh, and uh, and our uh, our instrument and music is is you're just so fascinating, and uh, it, uh, and the 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 mechanics. See, we must travel through the physical to get to the musical. We got to travel through the physical to get to the musical. And that's why some players are more developed than others. Some are able to maintain, some lose, and some are, and there's a world of triumph and tragedy within, within the, the jazz trumpet world and the trumpet world period. So many greats that we have lost to, to young ages and various forms of abuse and simple tragedies and some horrific and some uh reading about the history of what dizzy would always call our music is uh not only on our instrument but on all the instruments it's just a fascinating study in human nature and uh everything everything is and thank god for uh, things like youtube i think are so nice now because one thing can lead to another. Let's say you start researching. Uh, well, who who kind of broke away a little bit from Dizzy style? Uh, well, you could say. Uh, well, you could certainly say maybe Fats Navarro was maybe one of the first. You could say maybe Miles was someone else. So you get into someone named Fats Navarro, and you get on. And one thing on YouTube will lead to another, and another. And another, and then you'll read about his life, and you'll say, "Wait a minute, this guy named Clifford Brown came up just a little bit after Fats, but boy, he seemed to uh, he seemed to have his door open in his mind to what Fats was doing, and then he took it in his direction. And then you have a a player like Miles, who went thing to be admired about Miles is he found his own voice. There were there were times in Miles's early career he was playing Dizzy's lines note for note, verbatim. You know, a line for line. And Miles it, it admired originality for some it was it seemed very strange for him, but he was young. He was finding his own voice. He found his own voice. He found his own sound as did Fats and Clifford and, wait a minute, what, maybe this guy named Lee Morgan, he, he, what, where did, what, look what he did. And then, who's this guy, Freddie Hubbard? Where did, where did, who's Booker Little? Uh, what are all these guys? Who's Blue Mitchell? I mean, they, one, boom, 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 boom. One can lead to another and you can see the, uh, you can see the differentiation between the players and yet the similarities and, uh, and and YouTube can be very it can it, it can nice because it can lead you from from one thing one thing to the other for classical players as well. Yeah, well, and that's when um, 
I, I just remember one one of our lessons, you know, sitting in, the, in your basement and and having this kind of discussion about uh, you know the the unique voices and uh, and how these kind of lineages and evolutions occurred. And uh, that's one of the things I've always admired about you. I mean, not not only are you know you're a great player uh, and a, a, a excellent teacher, but I mean you're you're definitely a historian. I mean you you have that yeah you you have studied that. You know, oh yeah. One night I met Lee Morgan's brother when I was sitting in with Dizzy. He, Mr. Morgan came in to see Diz. You know, uh, Dizzy took Lee under his wing as a young trumpeter, as he did many people. It's one of the things I admire so much about him is that uh, he never saw someone young up and coming as a threat, unless the person was a real jerk, you know, whatever. But I mean, no, he, he wasn't that type of a man. But at any rate, Mr. Morgan, was a very dignified man. And I'll tell you, Jose, you didn't have to. You, he looked so much like Lee. In the, now, he was older than Lee, but my God, he had his face. And, you know, Lee Morgan was West Indian, you know, he, Jesus. And Mr. Morgan's wife was a beautiful, a beautiful looking uh, woman. At any rate, and Mr. Morgan carried himself with such dignity. And uh, I got talking to him a little bit and I said, uh, oh, just how much I thought of, uh, of his brother and uh, the legacy that he left us. And, and he said to me, oh, Lee, if his chops were bleeding or whatever, he would give everything and, and everything he had. And Mr. Morgan paid me a compliment. I, I'm not going to tell you what he told me, but uh, I will tell you that uh, what he said about his brother, he said, what I loved about Lee so much is he never played afraid. And if he was afraid, he never showed the audience he was afraid. Boy, what a beautiful, what a beautiful thing to say. I, I met uh, shortly after Woody Shaw passed away. We were and we were doing a gig at the Inner Harbor in Baltimore. And I was always one of the earliest ones to the gig. You know, I'd, I'd come with my thermos full of coffee. You know, I'd, I'd warm up a little bit, have a cigarette, you know, pour a coffee, just sit in the back, wait for everybody to show up. Uh, what did this, this older black gentleman started to walk into the band, which was kind of odd, you know. And uh, so I motioned him over to me, you know, that was because I was wondering what's going on here? And uh, so he comes up to me and I could tell he had a couple tastes, you know, <laughs> and he says to me, are you guys going to be doing any Duke Ellington? And I said, oh yeah, we're, we're a great chart on Mood Indigo and we might play Cottontail too, you know, and, uh, and, and he said, I had a son who was a jazz trumpet player. Now I started to look at him and I started to get an odd feeling because I saw his face somewhere something about him and i said really sir i said who was he and he said well i'm woody shaw's daddy now i looked and if you remember jose because i know you love woody shaw too remember Woody came out with an album with columbia it was called woody three mm -hmm. and it had a picture of woody his new baby and his father on the cover and I saw that face, you know, that moon kind of face. Mm -hmm. And I said, Mr. Shaw, I said, your son was a gift to us. An absolute gift to us. Now, now by now, 
cats, cats in the band are coming to the bandstand. I'm saying, Woody Shaw's dad is here. Well, we introduced we introduced Mr. Shaw to the audience. We played the Mood Indigo for him. He stood up. The whole audience applauded him. And he had tears in his eyes. And it was a, it was absolutely, I only saw Woody's band live once. And, uh, well, it was a terrible night in Washington, D.C., terrible rain. Oh, God, it was awful. But I drove down to club anyway, and my God, uh, Woody never spoke to the audience much, you know. Uh, you know, when you're a band leader, you, you find you find your own voice in many different ways in terms of the music you're presenting, you know, how you feel, whether or not you even talk to the audience. You know, I mean, some you don't have to. You can do it the hell ever you want. But it's up to your personality, you know. So I always enjoyed talking. It gave my chops a chance to rest, and, and I enjoyed the interplay of it. Where some people don't. Well, Woody's band was my God. My, what a! It was a quintet. Carter Jefferson was on tenor. Clint Houston was on bass. Eddie Gladden was on drums. I think it was George Cables. And my. God, it was one of the finest quintets I ever, and Woody, my God, his, his ideas, his thoughts, his approach to the horn, uh, just, just astounding, you know. And the band would, sometimes the band would get, get so far out, you know, because they played in and out, and when they would go so far out, Woody just grab his horn and he'd, he'd, play, he'd play a line or two from the melody. And I knew what he was doing. He was bringing everybody back home a little. Okay, we, we were in Pluto for a while. Let's come back to Earth. And it was so cool. And he was just, but to meet his father, and what do you know, what he passed away in a horrific manner, you know. There are many that say that he is our last great original jazz voice. There really hasn't been one since his passing. Now, I could understand how someone could say that because he found he found his own way. Of course, he he, he was very much Freddie Hubbard influenced. I, I played with Freddie, too, on, on the Dizzy Gillespie. Freddie was wonderful to me, and he played his heart out. And he had all kind of issues toward the end, chop-wise, and what he was going through and whatever. But, uh, but to meet Woody's dad and uh, out of nowhere, you know, in Baltimore, and they show him the respect. And he felt it too. Because when, when our audience he said, ladies and gentlemen, one of our greatest musicians who has ever lived, his father is here, would you please say hello to Mr. Woody Shaw? And the whole audience went nuts. And we played the shit out of all, all the Duke Ellington songs for Woody's dad too. So we, we, it was beautiful. Oh, man, that's great. Well, you know what, Vaughn, we're going to have to... Uh... We're going to have to schedule a second one of these, man, because there's so many stories I know that you've, you've got to share. But what we got to do in the meantime is uh, we've got a few uh, segments that we got to get through, uh, and uh, these are our standard segments. And uh, the first one is called Sound Off, and it's brought to us by friends at Barkley Microphones. Uh, and I want to talk to you a little bit about your approach to sound, like how, how do you uh, approach that? And you've actually already touched on this a little bit about uh, – the, the mental processes of, of creating a unique sound uh, and getting that to come out of the horn. Well, on the trumpet, my 
the, the, the best word I can use is commanding. I want it to be commanding. I want it to be centered, yet I want there to be some body around the note. I want it to have some edge, but not all edge. There are some trumpeters who are all edge. That's their sound. And if that's what they want, then that's it. Our sound is our fingerprint. It's everything. For me, I want it centered. I want it to be body around it. And I want it to be commanding. The, the flugelhorn is darker, fatter. It's going to be more lyrical. I've played a lot of high notes in my life, but in the end, I'll probably be remembered more as a flugelhorn player than a trumpet player to a certain extent, because uh, I've recorded some things I'm exceptionally proud of, things like Bridget, uh, other ballads, uh, other medium tempo things. I just hear the flugelhorn is wonderful. I, I make love to it more than I attack it. I do use the upper register sometimes for dramatic effect, but I don't overdo it. And one clinic I did many years ago, I was someplace out in the middle of nowhere in Kansas. And some young boy comes up to me and he says, Mr. Nark, can you, can you play the end of Bridget for me? Well, I go to an E flat above double high C on the end of Bridget on the flugelhorn. And I would never have done this for another person. But when I looked at the innocence in that kid's eyes, first of all, he knew what he was talking about. And I saw where his heart was coming from. I took the horn right out of the case and I did the best I could to, to quote that line for that little boy. And I came pretty damn close too. The valve trombone for me is about incisiveness and it is about edge. And I love the baritone horn for the thickness and the beauty of what it's capable of doing. So I want to give the audience four different colors. And if I'm, if I'm being true to myself, every human emotion that we're capable of from high to low to middle, so that I'm not hitting anyone over the head with too much extroversion, but I'm not playing so introverted that I lose people as well. Just all get our emotions out of the horn. All of them, high, low, middle. Oh man, that that's good stuff. That's good, and I, I have to say, man, I, I definitely do love your flugelhorn. So it, it's like butter. Um, so uh, our next segment, uh, next segment is uh, brought to us by uh, Venture Mouthpieces, our good friend Doug Bay at Venture Mouthpieces, where technology, design, and craftsmanship intersect. And this is geared up, and this is a discussion about gear, uh, and particularly uh, your concepts around uh, choosing the kind of gear that you need for uh, the job. So, uh, Well, I have my own custom-made mouthpiece. Now, Terry Warburton is going to be marketing this shortly here in the future. But I came up with this in the early 1980s. And, and what I wanted was I wanted to have a very, very small inner cup diameter. Very small. Mine is 0.583. However, I wanted to have a rim undercut because I wanted to be able to play the low register too and not have your mouthpiece go in, go into to touch the cup. So it's physically impossible for my upper, for my lip to actually touch the cup. And I have a fairly uh, standard size, eight, uh, probably 26 uh, 
throat or hole. It's certainly not a 16 or a 17 like Maynard. But why I came up with this is that for me, it helps with compression because my lips must be close together in order to get any sound whatsoever. That aids with compression, but I want to play the whole horn. So I want the low register too, so I have the rim undercut. And as far as this cosmetic thing is concerned with these ridges, this is just, I like uh, Jack Bell, what Jack Bell did to Maynard's early 1970. I just, it's just compression. It's just cosmetic. And this is Lexan here. It's plastic Lexan. And I do believe it helps with heat. And it also helps playing outside. But it helps heat my chops. I feel the heat when I'm, I can feel it. And for me, that helps with blood circulation. Yeah, my circulation is extremely impaired through the years because of diabetes, extremely. And boy, I could write a book on playing a horn and being a type one diabetic that some of it is harrowing. But nonetheless, it can be overcome. But it helps with heat. So Terry Warburton is gonna be marketing this both for trumpet and flugelhorn. And these are my designs. And Doug Elliott helped me through the years who apprenticed with a great old mouthpiece maker named Leroy Green, who, who made mouthpieces for Roy Eldridge and everyone else. Uh, he helped apprentice Doug, as did, the, as did my dear friend Donnie Junker. Uh, Leroy was a special dude. And uh, he helped me put this together. And I don't have a choice now because I have such scars on my chops that it has to be this because I've actually worn it into my upper lip. So at any rate, these will be coming out and Terry Warburton, who I think the world of Terry will be doing it. I play a big trumpet. I play the largest bore you can find. The Yamaha put together for me with an extra large bell. I don't know if it means anything, but maybe psychosomatically it does. On the flugelhorn, uh, my, uh, my horn was stolen in the early 1980s, as was my mouthpieces. Bobby Shue, who I've known for years, who I think the world of, helped put me in touch with the store in Torrance, California, where I bought a Quainon. I still have, I still have the Quainon, and I've had this forever. I'm attached to my horns, emotionally and physically. Uh, yeah, this happens to us. I will never buy another flugelhorn. I will have this restored. And the trumpet, whatever it is, is not the problem. I'm the problem. If something is going on, it's not the horn. It's me. Bell's trombone is a king, and I play Yamaha baritone horn. I've never been into horns or mouthpieces. I've, I've been more, much more into getting the gig. I want the forum. I want the gig, no matter what it is, if it's, if it's lead with a big band or a national symphony, or if it's a small group thing, I, I need the gig, not the horn. However, I'm happy when I've been with Yamaha since uh, 1990. Before then I was with Khan, Sandy Sandberg set me up. They made fine horns that Doc put out. And as a young kid, I played Doc's, uh, Eterna gets in trumpet, which is a five. Anything Doc puts his name on is a five-star trumpet. I think the world of Doc. I first played with him when I was 10 years old in 1967. And, and, and knowing Doc, 
he's probably already put in three hours on the trumpet today, and that's probably just his warm-up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Doc is, you know, talk about a force of nature. That's that's Doc. Uh, yep. Just un unbelievable. Unbelievable. I, I can tell I know stories about, we, if we ever do a volume two, I'll tell you stories about Doc. He wouldn't mind either. Uh, that that are personal and absolutely true. But Doc is the most dedicated. He may be the most dedicated to his instrument of uh, of any of our. Uh, he, he, he's well, you know that special that they did for him not too long ago, never too late, which was uh, which was on PBS, which was wonderful. But uh, Doc is uh, oh, he's just yeah, yeah. He's, he's historic. He's Doc, and he, he's still going. Yeah, yep. he, he can still play rings around uh, most of us. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I want, when I grow up, I want to be like Doc. So. And, he, and he wants no quarter for his age either. Yeah. No, no quarter. He's just a man's man. All of our greats were. Dizzy was that way. Maynard was that way. Louie was that way. They're just, they're just men that make you feel good to be around them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well. That's that's a good way to be. All right. Well, we've got one final segment to get through, and this is brought to us by good friends at Robinson's Remedies. Uh, care for your chops, uh, and uh, this is the Robinson's Remedy Rapid Fire Round, a series of questions that go all over the place, Vaughn. So, what I need is your quickest response to these questions. So, we're going to go again and get started with the first question: Who's the biggest influence on your life that is not a trumpet player? My father. I knew that was coming oh, uh, without, without I, a moment's hesitation. I played taps for him, Jose. He made me promise. Uh, he said, kid, there'll be too much pressure on you. I, and I, well, I just looked at him, because, but I know I'd feel like a coward if I didn't. And I took the last three notes up two octaves in the cemetery. I was not putting him to bed like anyone else. And I hit that last goddamn note with every bit of juice I had. And I held it. And then I released, I didn't cry. I waited for everyone to leave the cemetery. I threw my trumpet down on top of his grave and God. And I said, I'm gonna try to live my life to make you proud of me until I join you. And, oh God, so. Wow. Oh, let me get into this too, before I forget. Cause we need every friend as a trumpet player we can have. The best substance I've ever used to help with skin tissue and breakdown is aloe vera gel. In any drugstore, it, I know about skin tissue, having diabetes and whatever. For trumpeters every night, put a little bit of aloe vera on your chops. It's, gre it's greaseless. You'll feel it seep right into your skin. Dizzy used to carry the plant and break the leaf and put the juice on his chops. And Bobby Shue also recommends it. Aloe vera gel is a trumpet player's best friend. All right. Well, let's get to the next question. Uh, what is your favorite book? You know, I'd have to say the autobiography of Malcolm X. Okay. What's the worst movie you've ever seen? The Blair Witch Project. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, I've never watched that movie. Oh, good. <laughs> um, if you weren't a trumpet player, what would you want to be? Probably an actor. Some would say that it's the same thing. Yeah, you've you, you got a point there. 
All right. What's your favorite drink? Well, I stopped drinking in 91. Uh, but it used to be bourbon uh, before that rum. Early Times was my brand. Now, I never drank before a gig, ever, ever. But boy, after a gig. And when we toured South America in the late 80s, I, it was my favorite tours of all, not only because the women were the most beautiful I have ever seen. And, and in fact, the ugly ones took out because everyone was so goddamn beautiful. You'd, you'd feel sorry for the one woman because you'd wonder what happened to you. Everyone else is so beautiful. And their alcohol, their Pisco and whatever. And of course, you couldn't you shouldn't use ice when you're down there for, you know, you get dysentery problems. So it was always seam jello, which meant without ice. So that meant ha, the drink was even better. Yeah. So uh, bourbon, early times bourbon. That was now, now, now it's coffee. Well, now, yeah, I'm afraid so. I haven't, yeah. I haven't touched it since 91. All right. Um, you could have a dinner party. And at that dinner party, you can invite any three living people. Any three people in the world could come and join you for this dinner. Who would you want to have there? Any three living people. Wow, that's wonderful. Doc. I would want Doc there. Uh, I'm afraid I have to confine myself for my love of music. I'd want Bobby Shue there. And I'd want my dear friend Ken Smuckle, one of the greatest trumpeters I've ever heard. Uh, my dear friend, my brother. So I would beat three trumpet players, and we could let Doc would play lead, and uh, Bobby could play the solos, Kenny could play the extra high notes, and I'd make the coffee run. Uh, there you go. All right. Uh, and at this dinner party, you've got three additional chairs, and these uh, guests can be any three people from history, any three people that are no longer with us. Alexander the Great. Abraham Lincoln, and Dizzy Gillespie. Oh, man. Lots of fun at that party. Of course, Dad uh, would be there, too. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, we, Dad uh, and Mom, you bet. Yeah, that, that, that's a given. That's a given. Uh, okay, next question. Lacquer plated or raw? Lacquer plated or raw? You mean brass instrument? Yeah. Like, uh, Jose, I don't, I don't know if it makes any. There are some people who believe it does make a difference. I don't know, I don't know if it does or not. I, I I'm uncommitted. I'm sorry, I can't give you an answer. All right, it doesn't matter. A good player can play a garden hose. <laughs> I, I actually saw Peter Shickley do that at a, a Peter PDQ Bach concert. He, uh, I think, he called it the hosephone. He got a garden hose and started swinging it around and uh, making different pitches. That was, that was kind of wild. Right. Uh, what's your favorite quote? Be brave. Good things will follow. Mm. <clears throat> well, your story about uh, Dizzy, that's, that is proof that being brave and good things will follow uh, is an accurate statement. What is your greatest fear? Not making my father proud of me. Hmm. Okay. Um, you could be granted one superpower. What would you want it to be? Protecting animals. 
all animals. <coughs> I love them more than people. Well, they tend to treat you better than people. Unconditional love. That's that's what that's the thing I love about the. And my my I have a two, my two yellow labs are in the other room, and they look how well they only barked at one to one time, and I take I live in a forest, <coughs> so I feed all kind of animals. Yeah, that's that, I know that's important to you. Oh. Uh, well, okay. So our next question is: What aspect of trumpet playing do you feel is the most overrated? High notes. All right, and although, although I love them, I, I, but you cannot overdo them. And if you do hear them, give them all you got. They are important, but you cannot sacrifice your musicality just to be able to play double high C's all day long. But they are very important, and I love them. But anything, anything that that can be overdone is. Uh, <coughs> I mean, Bobby Hackett's Sprig of Pearl's trumpet solo is going to last longer than Doc Severinsen's Malagana. Although I love them both. But you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do love them. Yeah. All right. Uh, and uh, the next aspect of this is what aspect of trumpet playing do you feel is the most underrated? Sound. Sound. A person's sound. It must, our sound is our fingerprint. Sound. Mm. Sound like you. No one else, you. All right. Now, Vaughn, you're given the ability to go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about music. What would it be? Oh, well, that's a fantastic question. I, I feel I've been blessed because I've, I've been able to achieve uh, most of what I wanted to achieve, to know that I hopefully left a clean legacy and a clean contribution the best I could, considering the times I lived in. Uh, probably be a little bit more patient. Uh, be a little more patient, but uh, not being patient at times has served me well, but probably probably be be a little be a little more patient. All right. And while you're back there, you're gonna give your younger self one piece of advice about life. Oh Lord. Adapt overcome, survive, prosper, endure. Yeah, well, I think uh, endurance is so important. Not only for oh, the- life is hard. Yeah. And the older, the older we get, the more we lose. I'm the last one left in my family. I, uh, I organized our tombstone. I had a trumpet put on our tombstone for dad and I, beautiful etched. You know, they can do beautiful things on tombstones now. Uh, I'd, I'd like to be remembered as just somebody that gave the best he could, loved his craft, 
respected all of our masters, shared his contacts, was a, was a good dude to be around. And even when he didn't feel his best, he goddamn well gave his best. Yeah. Well, I think you actually just answered the, the last question, which is, what do you want your legacy to be? There you go. You know, that's, that's it. That's it. I mean, our craft is noble and our instrument is historic. Uh, to any young people, when you start to achieve uh, certain things, just remember the, just remember something goes without saying. Tell the truth. Tell the truth, even when it hurts, even things about yourself that may hurt. There have been times I've overplayed, uh, I've overdone. Uh, it's not a good idea when you're making a, an LP to have in the back of your mind, you know, this may be the last thing I ever do because you tend to add and then add some more and then add some more and then get to the point where you say, now, wait a minute, this is defeating the purpose here. Maybe sometimes less is a little bit more. So just, you know, tell the truth, be, be, uh, be honest about your, you know, about your good qualities and qualities that need some work. We all need work. We're all flawed. We all make mistakes. We all fall on our ass. We get back up, we do the best we can, and our instrument, in the end, it will make a fool out of us. That's the beauty of it. Oh, ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? All right, well, Vaughn, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I mean, um, as, I, as I said at the beginning of the show, um, working with you, uh, you know, the, those uh, few years that, that I was studying with you, really made tremendous impact on me, uh, not just as a player, but as a person. Um, so I, I really am so happy that we got a chance to connect uh, on, on this. And I guarantee you, we're going to have a follow-up to this because there are so many stories that you have. I, I, you know, we didn't even get into to like the airmen and, and things like that. And, and so I, I definitely want to have you back again and, and we'll talk about, about some, uh, some more of your, your exploits. Well, I'm glad that the airmen, as we as we speak here today, are still there. They are still a phenomenal. I know all of them. I just did a nice alumni thing with them a few years ago. I know them all, uh, and I know all most of the cats. And I'm glad all of the service jazz bands, which are our finest jazz orchestra. I mean, they're the last touring idiom within what we can call big band music. And, and there are fen phenomenal musicians and playing with that orchestra was a absolute dream come true for me. And uh, I was blessed, absolutely blessed. And I was able to, through the years, bring in Dizzy as our guest soloist. I brought in John Faddis, I brought in Arturo, I brought in Bobby Shue, and I brought in Marv Stamm. So all the players that I loved, I wanted to put them in front of a band that could smoke their charts. And we did. And they were, they were happy as a pig in shit when I did it, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, th those, th those are some great names. And, uh, yeah. Well, Dizzy, the Dizzy experience is a, is a show in itself. Yeah. Oh, God. What we <laughs> When he had 6,000 people in the palm of his hand at Constitution Hall when he walked out there, oh, my God. Jose, 
and what I did in order to get him there. Oh, and you know, he was never paid. He never, he did it for nothing. He never even sent in to be reversed, reimbursed for his airline. He flew in from Canada. Uh, he never even sent his paperwork in. He paid for that gig himself and it was his, he, didn't, he wouldn't send it in, but we smoked his charts. And as soon as the gig was over, he looked at me and he said, all right, kid, you owe me one. Now get my ass back to the airport. So I, I got him back, <laughs> got him back <laughs> to the airport. Oh, that's great. That's great. And, and speaking of Diz, uh, if you haven't seen it yet, uh, there's going to be a link in the show notes for um, some some great clips of from the uh, the Wolf Trap. Uh, that's one of my favorite things uh, with uh, with Diz and and you and uh, Fattis, Freddie. Say if I could plug myself here just to the, all my stuff is on my website www.vonnark.com. I think people will enjoy some of my recordings that don't have them, but they're there. So. Uh, and I'm just going to keep swinging for as long as I can. And, and if I get to the point where I don't have the balls to go for something that I feel in my mind, I'll put the horn down. But up until that point, I'm, I'm going for the gold all the way. There you go. There you go. Well, you know, and, and uh, I have to agree with Diz when it comes to you, Vaughn. You are certainly something special. Oh. So. Thank you, my friend, for, for your time. And thank you for joining us for this hang. Make sure that you like and subscribe uh, and support our sponsors and uh, all that good stuff. So we want to keep this hang going. And uh, we want to make sure we you know stay around long enough to get Vaughn back on to, to hear some, some more of his great stories. So thanks for spending time with us today. And as always, peace and slide grease. We out. God bless you. Thanks for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend. We want to see the hang grow for show. Please support our sponsors and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of valve oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded at the Candy Factory, a co-working space and social club located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jose Johnson is the executive producer. Post-production editing is by Mitch Bowers. Our opening theme song was composed and performed by Lexi Signal. And our closing theme music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. Incidental music is by Ethan Swayze and Jose Johnson. Graphic design by Ann Kirby of The Sweet Corps. The Trumpet Guru's Hang podcast is produced in collaboration with the So Good Lancaster Media Group.